Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. Last episode, we started to get into the question of who we ought to blame for the ideas about human races. And we sort of came to the conclusion that Francois Bernier was as close as we could get, at least in the 17th century, bum, bum, bum. to a perpetrator. But today, we're going to start to get into the real villains of the piece who show up in the 18th century. These are mostly natural historians and philosophers who really honed race into a notion that is what we still know of today as the concept of race. So as we move into the 18th century, that's the 1700s for the non-historians in the room. Thank you. We see how notions about human difference really become solidified into race as the foundation of the life sciences and even what would be called anthropology. If there's one point in history that we can turn to and point at that and say, yep, this is where it starts to get real, then it's probably during the Enlightenment and the craze during the Enlightenment for classification and for trying to explain all differences somehow naturally. But first, to finish off the story of the 1600s, the 17th century for you historians. Thank you. There were three, <laughs> there were three lines of thought about race going forward and three blame games to play. First, there was the pre-atomism concept that La Perere and others had put forward. And that, of course, goes on ultimately to develop into full-blown polygenism. And Polygenism, for those of us who aren't as erudite as Jim. Second, there was Bernier's classification, which had relatively little impact in the 1600s, although some scholars today still point to his 1684 article as the beginning of modern racial classification. At the time that that article was published, it was apparently so unmemorable that only five years after its publication, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the German mathematician and philosopher, mentioned it, but he couldn't remember who had written it, remember it was published anonymously, or where it had been published, and he got the races that Bernier had set up wrong. Uh, he said that even the, the units uh, that Bernier had used were apparently opaque to Leibniz. He said that a certain voyager divided human beings into certain tribes, races, or classes. He didn't use the races or species idea that Bernier used over and over. And later in the 18th century, the German natural historian, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, more about him later, oh, yeah. attributed this mistaken classification to Leibniz and started a blame train down the, down the Leibniz track. <laughs> the Leibniz track. But, but Leibniz didn't even like this idea of race, did he? And he thought instead that human groups ought to be called peoples and divided up by language. That was what he was arguing for when he gave the statement about Bernier, that humans aren't divided up into natural groups but into cultural groups by characteristics like language. But that hasn't stopped a number of people from trying to hang racial classification around his neck. I think we should let Leibniz off the hook. He was still fighting with followers of Newton about who actually invented calculus. Were we all saying his name wrong? Yeah, it's Leibniz. But that's, you don't speak German. It's okay. <laughs> Nicht so gut. I don't. I really don't. <laughs> anyway, we should let him off the hook. I think I would rather talk about some of the 18th century characters who probably do actually get some of the blame for creating the scientific notion of race. Uh, I think the two chief ones, one of them I think most people would have heard of, Carl Linnaeus, uh, who after 1761 called himself von Linnae. What about Carolus? Yeah, I guess that's probably the Latinized more it is. 
even snootier version of his name. We'll just call him Linnaeus. And then the other guy that we need to talk about is Georges-Louis Leclerc Comte de Buffon, who happens to <laughs> – there happens to also be a soccer goalie named Buffon. And when you go on the internet and type in Buffon, all you get are pictures of the soccer goalie. But really, this Buffon was really, really important. Anyway, so the let's talk about these two guys today. And then Blumenbach and some of the other guys we'll talk about in a later episode. Okay, so Buffon and Linnaeus. These guys made very different contributions to ideas about race, right? From Buffon, we get the term race. And it first gets sort of linked to scientific discussions of man. But from Linnaeus, we really get the modern version of, of sort of race and color and continent as these coded and important human divisions. That, that's right. They had very different impacts on, the, on ideas about race. Uh, after Buffon published his Natural History of Humans, the section of his long multi-volume set of Histoire Naturelle, of the varieties of the human species uh, section was published in 1749, and other people began to use the term race to refer to major divisions like Bernier had. But Ashley Montague, in his seminal work, Man's Most Dangerous Myth, starting in 1942, claimed that Buffon first used the word race in a scientific context. And Montague goes on to say, since Buffon's works were read widely, both within France and translated into many other European languages, they were widely available, and so many people began to use this term in a scientific context. And so he needs to be held at least partially responsible for the diffusion of the idea that there was a, a natural separation of the races in humans. But Buffon himself doesn't seem to have had the same kind of an idea about the different natural separation. So that's what Montague said. Ashley Montague, he was a student of Franz Boas. He's an anthropologist. In the 20th century. In the 20th century, and he's the author of the book Jim just mentioned, Man's Most Dangerous Myth. He was a prominent anti-racist. And he also helped author the 1950 ah. UNESCO statement on race and why race is not a biological thing. Correct. So, Jim, I think you're going to have to unpack what we mean when we say something like Buffon didn't think that races were natural divisions of humans. What does that mean? Well... Buffon himself didn't really believe that classification was a valid pursuit. He felt that what we saw around us and what he referred to as races at that point in time when he was writing his work were simply the current condition of different humans in different places who had been exposed to different environmental stresses that resulted in them becoming different from one another. He also thought that these were completely reversible and that any type could become any other type among the different races. So he didn't see these as the kinds of major divisions that were set in stone or for Linnaeus created by a creator, by his god. Uh, so this is a very different perspective on what race was. Uh, but wasn't Buffon using race like Leibniz? Is that right, Eric? Yeah, yeah, Leibniz. Like Leibniz was using people? Or more like we might use the term ethnic group today? Yeah, that's right. Anyone who's taken the time to actually look at Buffon's work, like Jim has, realizes that that really Buffon didn't do the kind of classifying that people says, say that he did. His idea of natural history was actually just a description 
of appearances and habits of all of the varieties of things, plants and animals that he knew about. And that's another point about Buffon. The varieties were known to him through mostly the writings of other people, not really through his own travels. He did travel, but mostly he was an armchair natural philosopher, not like Bernier, for instance, who did most of the traveling himself. In fact, Buffon was known for being a little credulous and led some to refer to his big natural history as the unnatural history, even though it was a 36-volume uh-huh. encyclopedia of all the plants and animals known at the time. His casual description of race of men not far from Manila who practiced Catholicism but also had tails. <laughs> That's one of the examples of where he believed about anything that was said of it. So is it fair to say that he was interested in sort of cataloging human difference without necessarily classifying it into hard and fast categories? He didn't believe in hard and fast categories at all. And and he would, uh, much of what he does in Histoire Naturelle is, is about getting at Linnaeus's classification that his rigorous, you know, permanent natural set of classif- classifications and making the point that that's that's just not the way the natural world is organized. The natural world is much more messy, much more disorganized, and any sort of idea, classification idea that we put on it was strictly something that's being imposed from the outside. In fact, Linnaeus and Buffon were kind of enemies of each other, and they would argue specifically over how we classify species in plants and animals in general, Linnaeus thought that God had sort of put a marker in the natural world and that the job of naturalists was to find those markers. Buffon thought that that was a silly idea and that you couldn't really define what a species was. We just call species because we are naturalists and we say that there are species, but there aren't any actual markers from on high. Cool. That's very fair. A good example of that is his phylogeny of the horse family with the horses and the asses and the zebras uh, all being descended from a common ancestor in his idea and then just simply specialized by virtue of adaptation to, to different climates. One of the things about Buffon that confounded a number of his contemporaries was the way that he would switch terminology. Uh, He had very little by way of differentiation between species and race. And when he was using race, many times he was referring to very small and specific groups like the tailed Catholics in Manila. Mm -hmm. And other times he was talking about broad, almost continental groups. Uh, And uh, he was criticized for this, but he said that he he wasn't using race as synonymous with nation Rather, he had a a broader sense of race, something that would be more akin to what we think of as race today. And he maintained that there could be substantial variations between nations within his races. And within nations, there could be substantial various different types of peoples. And so he had kind of a hierarchy of, of differences that were embedded within his races. But it was only when he saw what he thought were substantial differences between one group and another, like the Hottentots and the Tartars, which are terms that he uses to describe some of the the groups in his natural history of man, he considered them to be from different races. So wait a second here. If Buffon is the one who is not coming down hard in terms of categorizing people into races, why aren't we just pointing our blaming fingers at Linnaeus? Isn't he the one who kind of did this? The f- 
I mean, maybe. But the funny thing is that Linnaeus doesn't actually use the term race ever. In fact, Never? in the first edition of his Systema Naturae, he doesn't give any of the divisions labels. He just has a genus uh, categorization called Homo. And in that, he, notice, he notes that there are characteristics that break Homo into four subdivisions. There are white Europeans, there are red Americans, there are brown Asians, there are black Africans. And then there's only one other, quote, species that's divided using that same division. And that happens to be a mineral. So minerals can be divided that way, too. Which mineral? Quartz, specifically. So we have races of quartz and races of people, except not because he doesn't use the word races? That's right. He doesn't He doesn't call the subdivision anything until he gets up into his second edition, which was put out in 1740. And there he uses just the abbreviation V-A-R-I-A-T, period. And that's the abbreviation for the Latin variatus or variety. And that way he is deliberately making a choice not to use the term gens, G-E-N-S, the Latin term, which is more commonly translated as race or nation. One other thing that, that I'd point out is that the color term that he used for Asians in his first classification, the color term that translates as brown, is different from the color term that he uses later in time when he switches to the color yellow to represent the Asian continental human population. Okay, so let me ask that question that I just asked a minute ago a different way. If Linnaeus is not talking about races, then why should we blame him? Okay, so this is why it's only a kind of not. So in the first edition, right off the bat, he's still using the same criteria that people today, when they're trying to say that race is a scientific concept, use, namely skin color and then continent of origin. And these have been the two most consistent criteria that some people say is the way that we should scientifically divide up humans into races for the last three centuries. That's right. And by the time we get up to the 10th edition of Linnaeus's Systema Naturae, he divides us up into two species, that's sapiens for us and troglodytes for apes. And then the humans are divided into six varieties. The four continental groups that he used since 1735 and wild men and monsters. <laughs> Who gets their own category? It's awesome that wild men and monsters get their own categories. It is awesome. He doesn't have specific descriptor terms for these categories, but he does have footnotes about wild men and monsters. And in those, he shows perhaps even more credulity than Buffon was showing in his descriptions of the different human groups. But isn't this around the time that good old Victor of Aveyron is showing up as well? The, the like wild child who was found in France at age 11 and had no ability to speak and stuff like that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I think that happened in the 18th century. And so the wild men would fit in that category, right? I know something about history that a historian doesn't know. Isn't Linnaeus using more than just color and continent to describe the groups by the time we get to 1758 or no? He is, but it doesn't get him off the hook. Um, by the 1758 edition, he uses descriptive terms that adds information. And those descriptive terms have to do with temperament and appearance and personality, even stuff like decorations, tattooing, social regulations. It's those descriptive terms that most people point to as ranking the races putting all races in a kind of ladder-like hierarchy with Europeans, of course, on top, and then Asians, 
and then Native Americans, and then, of course, of course, of course, Africans always get stuck on the bottom. So is this the first time we're seeing that kind of actual ranking? I think that it's safe to say that all the other times that we've seen the ranking, it hasn't been attached to a notion of classification where the rankings were permanent, where those were essential categories that you say an African acts like this and a European acts like this, as well as appears like this. So what did those rankings look like? Well, so for instance, Linnaeus uh, would say that Europeans were acute and aware and intellectual on the opposite end of the spectrum, Africans can be crafty, but are also classified as lazy and careless. And yet, it's never quite as simple as that. Many people have different translations of the African descriptors. One says that Africans are black, phlegmatic, relaxed, with black frizzled hair, silky skin, flat nose, tumid lips, females without shame, mammary glands give milk abundantly, they're crafty, sly, careless, and they anoint themselves with grease and they are regulated by will. There's a lot of disagreement about how Linnaeus's descriptors should be translated. Some of the terms he used were common words in Latin that most people would agree on the translation, but many of the things that he's using are just words that he was Latinizing, giving them an ending to make them sound like Latin. Sort of like his name? Like Carolus. Linnaeus. Like Carolus, yeah. Carl, Carolus. And, yes. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and his description of the different racial groups is not written in any sort of sentence format or there's no syntax to it. It is literally just a list of phrases and adjectives, no sentence structure, which may have partly been due to the fact that Linnaeus mastered spoken Latin, but he received very low grades in school for his syntax. (laughs) The problem is, without syntax, many of these words that have multiple different meanings so that the translations that people have made of his descriptors have taken a number of different forms. For instance... The phrase in his African descriptors, and I'm going to butcher the Latin, but feminus sine pudoris, which most people translate as females without shame, and in fact that's what Google Latin translates it as, is translated by some people as females with genital flap, and by another individual as women with a natural apron. There's a good bit of the Rorschach test involved here with the translation of Linnaeus's descriptors being phrased more or less racist depending upon the viewpoint of the author and the viewpoint that the author wants to make. Hmm. Um, Haven't I also heard that Linnaeus thought very highly of himself with a name like Carolus? How could you not? (laughs) Yes, definitely. He, He did have a very high opinion of himself, particularly for someone who had not been coming out of a high class background as a child. And his uh, teachers at one point told his father that the only thing he'd be good for was manual labor because he simply didn't have the intellect to pursue higher education and to become the priest that his father had slated for him. Later in life, he wrote of himself basically as sitting on the right hand of God. Whoa. He really, he really felt that and, and writes about himself in the third person. This Dang. is This is Linnaeus talking about his greatness. Can I read it? Can I read the quote? Absolutely. Quote, God has suffered him to see more of his created work than any mortal before him. God has endowed him with the greatest insight into natural knowledge, greater than any has ever gained. The Lord has made of him a great name. 
Carolus. I added Carolus. As one of the great ones of the earth, end quote. So he sounds like he could be a politician, but in the end, Linnaeus was just a guy who liked to classify stuff. I mean, it's true that he really should be called the father of modern natural history. But it was really Buffon who talked about deeper stuff, like origins of things, not really Linnaeus. Buffon projected both a geographic origin, but also even a mechanism for generating difference that he later would label racial differences. That's exactly correct. These were two real giants of 18th century natural history, and they had really different views of what their job is, what we would think of as scientists today really was. Linnaeus considered the descriptions that Buffon offered in his Histoire Naturelle to be meaningless, flowery prose and a distraction from the job at hand, which for Linnaeus was to figure out how to come up with a way to classify all of God's creations in nature. By contrast, what Buffon was thinking about Linnaeus was that his classification systems were little more than boring tables, and the early editions were simply great big large tables of critters divided up into different groups. And that was just a, a way to store information in Buffon's opinion. Linnaeus came up with an artificial classification based on sexual systems in plants, making no assumptions about their origins or relationship. Buffon had the idea that human races had come from a common form, and then because we spread out into different parts of the globe, we ended up degenerating into different forms in different settings. He thought that our original species homeland was between 40 and 50 degrees latitude, naming so-called civilized countries from Georgia in the east to northern Spain in the west, and all of France being in the center of this, where he found people to be the most beautiful on earth. Departures from this beauty, then, he felt were due to migration and time spent in different climates, eating different diets, pursuing different lifestyles, exposure to different diseases, and breeding with individuals of different groups. So Buffon's classifications were, of course, very, very different from Linnaeus's. I love the fact that he says the most beautiful people come between 40 and 50 degrees latitude because, of course, Linnaeus was from Sweden, and so he was north of 50 degrees latitude, which means he wouldn't have been included in the most beautiful people, <laughs> according to Buffon. But, of course, their systems are really, really different. Buffon was not that interested in trying to figure out what God's plan for the natural world really was. And he didn't really need to. He had a pretty secure position. He was actually head of the Garden of the King in Paris. Uh, in fact, Louis XV personally nominated him to be that in 1739. Of course, <laughs> Buffon was probably pretty upset when, in 1774, Louis then ordered officially like a royal decree that the classification system that would be used to order the royal gardens in Paris was not Buffon's system, but Linnaeus's system. Ugh. I'm sure he took it as a punch in the gut. However, he didn't have to live through the French Revolution. And the Garden of the King just got turned into the Garden of Plants and continues to exist today in Paris. So his institution lived on past the revolution, unlike many, many, many other institutions. And he didn't even have to lose his head, unlike a lot of other scientists during the revolution. I call that a win-win. More or less, the work that these two people did during the, uh, uh, during the 18th century 
has had a, a long-term lasting impact on our understanding of natural history and especially the natural history of humans. Although Buffon uses both terms species and race much like Bernier did in his uh, 17th century work, the broad sense of the term race that Buffon argued for late in his career is exactly what Blumenbach adopted in his very influential work that played a key role in transmitting ideas about race, particularly to the New World. This is a piece of work that came out at the end of the 18th century. We'll, we'll talk more about Blumenbach in the next episode and cover things like why he switched from using Linnaeus's varieties to using the Latin term that translates as race, as Buffon had suggested. So yeah, Linnaeus, Buffon, both big names. Uh, we typically teach Linnaeus in middle school science as one of the first sort of modern science persons in in the natural history and how we classify things by genus and species. But fun fact, I actually teach Buffon as the progenitor of the theory of evolution um, since he gives the, in my Darwin class, since he gives the first really fully formed notion of how we can have common descent with variation in his paper on the ass which i love giving on the first day of class and we say hey guys we're going to talk about the ass today and they're like yes this is why i came to college there you go or middle, <laughs> or middle school right. i'm joe the cultural anthropologist i'm eric the historian i'm jim and this has been speaking of race thanks so much for listening we're going to continue this episode and look more at a couple of key figures in the enlightenment in the future, especially Blumenbach, who we introduced today. Like five times. But there's going to be some fun things coming at you this summer because Joe Weaver will be in, where are you going? India. She's going to India. And she'll be giving us a podcast episode from India with all luck. At least one. Does that mean we can pimp Joe's book in one of these podcasts then? No, because it has nothing whatever to do with race. Joe will have a book coming out when? Is it coming November. out this fall? Yeah. And you should buy her book. She needs it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Thanks, We all Jim. do. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs>